0: Welcome to the prolific teaching ministry of Pastor Immanuel Iren, lead pastor of Celebration Church International. It is his vision to partner with you for your progress and joy in the faith. Ready, set, grow. I want to start by reading to you from Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings and heavenly places in Christ. You see, this text, as simple as it is, is so powerful because it tells us the point of our theology. You see, our theology is not for theology's sake. It is not um, a basis for superiority complex. It's not just to prove that we know better than others. All right? He tells us we are blessed with all spiritual blessings and heavenly places in Christ. We are beneficiaries of everything that Christ died for. And we are beneficiaries of that for a reason. There is a response that that knowledge should birth in us. And it is worship. So when we realize that he has blessed us with all spiritual blessings and heavenly places in Christ, we bless him too. He has spoken well of us, meaning he has declared us righteous, so we speak well of him too. This is so important, so basic, but so powerful. All right. So every theology is supposed to lead to worship. And as we go on this month, addressing things and correcting things, you have to realize it's not pointless research. It is for worship so that we can see accurately what Christ has done. So that we can worship accurately the Christ of the Bible. This is so important. So one more time, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings and heavenly places in Christ. Next verse, Paul makes a bold statement. He says, "As According as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, to be holy and without blame before him in love. You know, I say this is a bold statement because you want to wonder, Paul, how old are you? How dare you talk about something that happened before the foundation of the world or from the foundation of the world? How do you know? Were you there? He makes bold to say he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and without blame. How could he know? Not only that, he says, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. He adopted, he he predestinated our adoption in Christ before the foundation of the world. Well, how did you know? The reason is simple. Paul knew by the revelation of the scriptures, what he just said is in the scriptures. From Genesis to Malachi, what people call the Old Testament, all right? There is something theology, theologians call the Christology of the Old Testament. Meaning that when you see the Old Testament from the proper lenses of revelation, you discover that it is littered with the revelations of Christ. Littered with the revelations of Christ. You know, no wonder... The, the Bible tells us in John chapter 1, as the disciples of John, all right, began to follow Jesus. One of the profound statements that one of them made was this: He says, Come and see he of whom Moses spoke of in the law. And he was not wrong. Moses wrote about Christ. Jesus in John 5:39 said, Search the scriptures. In them you think you have eternal life. They are they that testify of me. So Jesus. Is saying, if you read the scriptures, the Old Covenant, or what we call the books of the Old Covenant, Genesis to Malachi, you will see me in there. It speaks of me. And so, Paul reads the Old Testament with revelation, and he comes up, you know, his conclusion is worship. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he chose us. In Christ, before the foundation of the earth, to be holy and without blame. So, he sees God's plan in Christ foretold in the Old Testament. So, there is a way to read the Old Testament through the lens of Revelation. It takes training in the Word. Like I said, theologians call it the Christology of the Old Testament. And I'll just put this in a nutshell this way. A mature Christian is able to see all the events in the history of the Bible leading and pointing to Christ. That's maturity. For you to see the purpose of it all, all right? Like a jigsaw puzzle, when you put all the pieces together, the image, the wholesome single image that you see is Christ. And that's what, you might might have heard the word Christocentric. It's a Christ-centered approach to Bible study, where Jesus says in Luke chapter 24, verse 25 to 27, from especially 26, he says, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so when you take a Christocentric approach to Bible study, you are reading the Old Testament not just for the stories as great as they are. But for the prophecy of Christ to see the consistency of God's plan of salvation from the beginning to the end, it's a totally different approach. And different things will stand out for you. When you read the story of David, for instance, what stands out for a lot of people is that he killed Goliath. But guess what? David was quoted about, about 60 times or more in the New Testament, and the story of David and Goliath was not mentioned once. Because guess what? In the grand scheme of things, there were bigger priorities in the story of David than his war with Goliath. It stands out to us because we like drama. It's consistent with the action movies that we watch. But God had bigger priorities, all right? In Acts chapter 2, the Bible, Peter speaking, called David a prophet. Of all the things that you knew David to be, You knew him to be a musician. You knew him to be a shepherd boy. You knew him to be a soldier. He was a prophet. And he prophesied about Christ many times. Do you understand? So when you take a Christocentric approach to Bible study, the things that stand out for you are different. All right? And I want to ask a question, you know, answer a question that I know is in the hearts of some people. Which is this, why isn't Christ clear in the Old Testament? Why isn't it clear? What do you mean Christ is in the Old Testament? How can't I see it? How can an untrained mind, a layman, see it? Let me put it to you this way, giving you an illustration. If you have a gift for someone, but you keep it a secret, because it's supposed to be a birthday gift, and the birthday is in two weeks, The person knows you're up to something, but the person doesn't know what exactly. You might even give hints, but you don't reveal what the gift is exactly because the gift is to be revealed at a particular time. So the Old Testament is like, um, it has a gift concealed to be revealed at a particular time. The wisdom of God in salvation is concealed in the Old Testament to be revealed in due season. And this is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, from verse 1 to 5. Don't forget, I said I'm going to be breezing through all of this because of time, so that we can run through all of this. This is still preamble. Ephesians chapter 3, from verse 1 to 5. It says, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, If you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is giving me to you, word. The Greek word translated dispensation actually is akin to a dispenser in our time, something that you use to share something. And so Paul is saying that there is um, this opportunity in God's calendar that we have stepped into. And now there are things that I have the privilege, the honor to be able to share that couldn't be shared before. And what is that? In verse three, he says, how that by revelation, he made known unto me the mystery. This is so beautiful. He says, by revelation, he made known unto me the mystery. Mystery comes from the Greek word musterion. Musterion um, is a derivative of another Greek word, M-U-O, all right? And it means to shut the mouth. Have you? Has it ever happened? um, A friend was trying to uh, reveal a secret, and by reflex you just stretched out your hand and shut the person's mouth. That's muo, all right, muo, however you want to pronounce it, you know. But it's just telling you the imagery of the Old Testament. There's a secret to be revealed, but it's not time. So there is a hand over the mouth, keeping that secret for for the right time. So he says, by revelation, he made known unto me the mystery. What was shut, that mouth that was shut before, has now been opened. And I have the privilege to reveal it to you. I have a revelation of the mystery. I have the revelation of what was secret. I have the revelation of what was hidden. And that's my ministry. And he said, verse 4, Whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge of the mystery of Christ. So Christ was a mystery before, a secret to be revealed. All right, people saw it in you know in hints here and there. They knew the Messiah was gonna come. But the nitty-gritties of the modus operandi of how salvation was to be actualized, they didn't exactly know. So Jesus in Luke chapter 24, 25 to 27. showed those guys who were going on the, on the road to Emmaus that Christ ought to suffer and to enter his glory. All right? But anyway, we're staying on Ephesians chapter 3, verse 5. This is very important, verse 5 now. Ephesians 3, verse 5. It says, "...which in other ages was not made known to the Son of Man, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit." So this is New Testament ministry, revealing by the Spirit from the Scriptures things that were hitherto secrets. That's New Testament ministry. So there are things in the Old Testament, specifically, don't forget, things about Christ, the mystery of Christ, that were concealed, that God, by his revelation and by his Spirit, sheds light so that his apostles and prophets could see write about it and explain it to us. And this is why Jesus could say, as Moses lifted up the brazen serpent in the wilderness, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, that's revelation of the mystery, it was a mystery for you to understand that that brazen serpent was a type of Christ, a symbolism of Christ, that people who are injured, who are um, about to die or were dying, would just look at that brazen serpent and be healed. The same way we look to Christ for salvation, trusting in his work, and then we are, by his stripes, we are healed. You see? So that's what the New Testament ministry does, to shed light on what was hitherto hidden. All right? So I want to give a few examples of this. You know, in Leviticus, for instance, chapter 20, verse 25, Some instructions were given to the children of Israel to be obeyed in this promised land. This promised land you to, God was giving them ordinances, principles, instructions. And one of those instructions was this, Leviticus 20, 25. It says, You shall therefore distinguish between clean animals and unclean. Between unclean birds and clean. And you shall not make yourselves abominable by beast or by bird or any kind of living thing that creeps on the ground, which I have separated from you as unclean. So now God says there are some animals that are clean. There are some animals that are unclean. Some you are free to eat. Some others you are not free to eat. You know, there are many people who don't understand that that's, that was typology. That was typology. It was figurative of something deeper. You see a lot of Christian teachings today trying to tell Christians what to eat and what not to eat from the Old Testament. And they have just totally missed it because you see, it was mis- musterion. All right. Something musterion shows us that there is usually something deeper than what something appears to be. There was um, a deeper intent, a deeper revelation beyond what was revealed. Anyway, let me not, I've already touched on that a little. As I give examples, you're going to get it. Now, in Acts chapter 10, God wants Peter to preach the gospel to Cornelius. Peter would not preach the gospel to Cornelius on a normal day, because he thought that God had endorsed these Jewish traditions that made it abominable for a Jew to have any dealings with the Gentiles. Listen, it was so bad that when the disciples of Jesus saw him talking to the Samaritan woman, the Bible says they were shocked. They were wondering, you know, because the Jews had no dealings. The Samaritan woman was herself wondering, like, "Ah, a Jewish man talked to me. Not only am I Samaritan, I'm a woman. You know, there there are a lot of, see, there are a lot of things that Jesus broke, all right. But here, God wants Peter to preach, And what does He do? He shows Peter a trance, a dream. All right. And in that dream, there was a sheet, like, like a sheet, maybe like a blanket from the sky in the dream. And on it he saw several animals. And then there was a voice, Acts 10:13, and there came a voice to him, "Rise, Peter. Kill and eat. But Peter said, not so, Lord, for I have not eaten anything that is common or unclean. Now, um, Peter is saying this from his understanding of Leviticus 20, 25 and many other texts that differentiate clean animals and unclean animals. So the animals he saw were unclean under the law. And this is what God said. The voice spoke to him the second time. What God had cleansed, that call not common, don't call it unclean, what God has cleansed. The Bible says, and this was done thrice, and then the vessel was received up again unto heaven. You know, and then in verse 17, the Bible tells us that when Peter got up and he was wondering, what does that dream mean? He was doubting, what's the meaning of this? By that time, people from Cornelius's house were at Peter's door. Normally, Peter would not even open. What are Gentiles doing at my door? But God spoke to him and said, there are people at your door. Verse 19, while Peter thought on the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men seek you. Arise therefore, get thee down, and go with them doubting nothing. So this is how Peter knew the meaning of the dream. He later knew that those animals were symbolic of people And that in the Jewish tradition, there had been a differentiation between Jews and Gentiles. But all of that was typified or symbolized with the animals, clean and unclean. And now God is saying, what you have called unclean for many centuries, I have cleansed. And therefore, don't call it unclean. You know, and this is the beautiful part of the story. So... Peter finds himself in Cornelius' house. And he says this to Cornelius. He says, you know, I being a Jew, I ought not to be here. Let me just read that to you. Verse 28. Then he said to them, you know how unlawful it is, Acts 10, 28, for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. He says, but God has shown me. That I should not call any, he didn't say any animal. He said that I should not call any man come on, unclean. Now, this is New Testament revelation shedding light on the fact that those clean, unclean animals were just a symbol of people. And God's message is: the Gentiles also have received inheritance in christ by faith so clean unclean animals symbolic of people acts 10 verse 1 he says for the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect he says Now, oh my goodness, you you need to pay attention to this. He says, for the law. He throws a blanket on the totality of the law. He says, the whole mosaic economy. He's making a reference to the whole mosaic economy. He calls it all a shadow. He says, the law. Definite article, the meaning every single symbol there, every single ordinance there, it says it was a shadow. A shadow of good things to come and not the very image. And so a good Bible student needs to probe to understand what was this indicative of and what was that indicative of. And then you realize that the sacrifices, the lambs that were slaughtered Year by year, were but a figure of the Lamb of God that was to come in Christ. And so John, you have to understand how striking it must have been for John to stand, John the Baptist I mean, in the company of Jews and to point to a human being and say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now that's revelation. That's Revelation. The lamb was but a symbol. The circumcision was a symbol. You know, the ordinance of circumcision, where, you know, they would take um, a sharp object and um, make an incision on the outer part of the male children, their private parts. And that was to symbolize that they belonged to the Lord. And in the New Testament, the Bible tells us that the New Testament, that the true circumcision is of the Spirit made without hands. By the Spirit. So that circumcision was a symbol of the true circumcision by the Spirit and in the heart. The true circumcision is in the heart. Where the old man and his nature is cut off from us. That's the true circumcision. It's of the Spirit. Because guess what? The law, Having the shadow of good things to come. The slaughtering of the lambs was a symbol of the true lamb of God. The circumcision was a true, was just a symbol of the true circumcision. Paul, in Philippians chapter 3, he says, We are the circumcision who serve God by the spirit and boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. This circumcision that he was referring to was not of the flesh. I'm going to talk um, on that either this Sunday or Upper. It's so powerful. All right? The tablet of stone was also a symbol. It was a symbol of the state of our hearts or the heart of the Jews. They were hardened. They couldn't do the will of God. And now, that's why the new covenant is not written on a tablet of stone. It says, but on the fleshy tablets of our hearts. Because that's where the laws of God belong. And he told Jeremiah, he says, I will give a new law, not according to the law I gave your fathers, which covenants they did break. He says, I will write my law in your inward parts; I will put my spirit in you. I will cause you to keep my judgments and do them. So the tablet of stone was but a shadow. The temples in Jerusalem, the temple of Jerusalem was but a shadow. Because the true temple of God is our body. It says your body is the temple of Christ. That's the only dwelling place for God. And so that was just a symbol. And I've taught you this before. The symbolism is so powerful. You see, as they were journeying to the promised land, because they were moving, they used tabernacles. It had to be movable, so it, it was tense, and in the tents, you know, the, the Ark of the Covenant and everything was there, so that it was movable. As it was time to move, they will move it. When they got to the promised land, then they built an actual building that Solomon built, all right? I have a lot to say about that, but pay attention to this. And so the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, it says, if the earthly tabernacle, this early tabernacle perishes, we have a building from God. He's making a comparison between our current frail body and the new body we'll receive at the resurrection. He calls this one a tabernacle. He calls that one a building. And that means the tabernacle in in the wilderness and then the building in the promised land were symbols of our current body and the body that is to come. Because, you see, those tents, as they moved those tents in the wilderness, they were subject to wear and tear. Just like this current body can grow old, it can get weak. But he says, don't worry. Even if this one perishes, we have a building. One more constant, one more permanent, unmovable, symbolic of the fact that that new body, all right, is going to live forever, endure forever. So it's all symbols. Again, Hebrews chapter 10 says, The law has a shadow of good things to come and not the very image. The sacrifices were but a shadow. The circumcision was but a shadow. The tablet of stone was but a shadow. The temples were a shadow. It was all a shadow. It was all a shadow. And then you come and you observe the communication of Jesus. And you see some powerful things. In John chapter 6, he said, I am the bread come from heaven. He says, except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Now, that's so powerful. You see, Jewish, these Jewish people, they took him literally. They said, why would he? This, what kind of carnivorous sermon what, this is cannibalism, right? What kind of sermon is this? The Bible says they stopped following him. But it was all figure of speech. So anyone who followed Jesus' early ministry knew that he used figures of speech a lot, especially as it pertained to food and bread in particular. He used bread as a metaphor for his body. And his redemptive sacrifice in John 6. Remember when he told um, the disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And they thought he meant literal bread. But he was actually talking about the doctrine of the Pharisees. Many people are making the same mistake today. Because guess what? He says, the law having the shadow of good things to come and not the very image. So we now have to ask ourselves... This old ordinance of the Passover, I mean, it's been 4,000 years, and it's still being celebrated today. You need to ask yourself one question. Is it that all the other ones were shadows except this one? And then there are some questions you must ask yourself. That 1,500 years after Moses Um, introduced the principle or the ordinance of the Passover by the the instruction of God, introduced it to the Jews. In Jesus' day, of all the times of the year, Jesus was killed on the very day that the Jews were slaughtering their Passover lambs. You, You have to understand In 365 days in a year, coincidentally, quote-unquote, Jesus was killed on the very day that all... So, you see, the Passion Week fell in the Passover, the period of the Passover. I'm going to read it to you. And on the particular day that Jesus was killed, it was the day that they slaughtered Passover lambs. What does that tell you? Is it a coincidence? And then 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes. All those symbols, what do you think they represent? What do you think they represent? Pentecost was used to celebrate new green, first fruits. Let me not get ahead of myself. We'll get to that. Let's read John chapter 18 from verse 28. John chapter 18 from verse 28. See what um, Pilate said. This was the trial of Jesus before Pilate. The Bible says, And they led Jesus... From servers to patronium, or sorry, praetorium. I beg your pardon. And it was early in the morning, but they themselves did not go to praetorium lest they should be defiled because they might eat the Passover. So this was Passover period, all right. Verse thirty-nine. Paul, um, Pilate is speaking. He says, "But you have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover." Do you therefore want me to release you, the king of the Jews? So listen, on the very day that Jesus was killed, you see this clearly, this was the Passover, as Pilate himself opined, all right? Just let's just out of curiosity look at the Pentecost, Leviticus 23, 16, Leviticus 23, 16. So you have to see, all right, a prophetic force behind all of this. Leviticus twenty three sixteen, it says, "Count fifty days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, which is the Passover." It says, "Then you shall offer new grain offering to the Lord." Oh, glory to God! You will offer new grain offering to the Lord. New grain. So. This was the principle of the first fruits. Numbers twenty-eight twenty-six. Numbers twenty-eight twenty-six. He says, also on the day of the first fruits, you shall bring a new grain offering to the Lord for the feast of weeks. And you shall have holy convocation, and you shall do no customary work. So what is the symbolism here? First and foremost, in Romans chapter 8, the Bible clearly tells us that we have received the first fruit of the Spirit. So this first fruit, this new grain, was symbolic of the Spirit. And new birth by the Spirit. And that's the day that the church was born, by the Spirit. It was all symbols. All these feasts were preordained to tell a redemptive story. And if the Jews just followed them without seeing the deeper symbols. And unfortunately, a lot of people are doing the same thing today. So I asked the question. I said, do you think it is by accident That of all the days in the calendar, Jesus was killed on the very day that lambs were slaughtered in the celebration of the Passover. And then the disciples were already supposed to celebrate the Passover. They were Jews. And this time around, Jesus joins them. All right? Look at Luke chapter 22 from verse 7. Luke chapter 22 from verse 7. Luke 22 from verse 7, it says, Then came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed. He It was that day, when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat. So they went and prepared it. Alright? So they prepared Rome, verse 15. He said this, oh, glory to God. Pay attention to this. Luke 22, verse 15. Then he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Why? He says, for I say unto you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled. Meaning, the Passover was a prophecy to be fulfilled. A symbol to be actualized. I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So, how is it fulfilled? Meaning it's a symbol. What is it symbolic of? What Are you going to show us what it's symbolic of? The Bible says, then he took the cup and gave thanks. And said, Take this and divide it amongst yourself. For I say to you, I will not drink of the true vine until the kingdom comes. He took the bread and he gave thanks and he gave it, and he, he said unto them, This is my body, meaning this feast that you have celebrated for one thousand five hundred years. It spoke of me. This is my body broken for you, broken for you, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, my blood which is shed for you, mind you, he had not yet died at the time, but he's telling them, what." that blood was supposed to represent. So now, when you see this, it should arouse a curiosity in you to go back to the story to read carefully and see the symbolism. In the symbolism of the story, judgment is to come on the entire land of Egypt. Mind you, it was for the entire land, so in some sense, in some way, everybody was deserving of judgment. Mind you, the Jews were not going to be exonerated just because they were Jews. They had to do something. Ah, yeah, 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 yeah. You need to get this. So everyone was deserving of judgment. The Jews were to slaughter a lamb, put the blood of that lamb on their door, on their lintels. And as the judgment and the spirit thereof is hovering around the entire land, He says, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Meaning, it is not because you were a good person that you escaped judgment. It is not because of anything that you did that you escaped judgment. You escaped judgment only on account of the blood. Guess what? If any Egyptian heard that instruction and did the same thing, they would have been saved too. You need to understand the symbolism. When I see the blood, I will pass over. Not when I see your good works. Not when I see your performance. Not when I see your devotion, your favor. It says when I see the blood. And then Jesus said, this is my body. Broken for you. This is the new covenant in my blood. That blood was Christ. His sacrifice That judgment is the judgment that all men are deserving of. The Bible says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It says, But are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So that blood on the lintel was symbolic of Christ and His sacrifice. And now, they were not just going to stay indoors. How, how are they going to celebrate um, the redemption by the blood? So he said, you're going to eat. And there were instructions about what to eat. He said, you're going to eat unleavened bread. Pay attention. Unleavened bread. We want to talk about that. So, but I want to just give a blanket Explanation to this, then we go deeper into it. It just tells you that in redemption, there is fellowship. So the Passover was supposed to typify the fellowship that we have in Christ. It was an in Christ fellowship. That's why the instruction was, no stranger is supposed to partake of this fellowship. That's the picture. What is that to us? Now you come to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. There is someone who was in the Corinthian church. But from all indication, he didn't belong there. He was acting like an unbeliever. All right. How was he acting like an unbeliever? He had open sin, committing the sin of incest, dating his father's wife. And they were open about it. And Paul said, What? You're committing a sin that even the Gentiles will be amazed about. And then he says this, I'm giving an instruction, deliver such a person to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. And this was a metaphor also. The church is the church of Christ. If he's in the church of Christ and he's proving not to be born again, deliver him to Satan, meaning kick him out of the church. And then he begins to explain, Oh, glory to God. In 1 Corinthians 5, 6, it says, Your glory is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So now, just the same way God explained to Peter that unclean animals, clean animals was not about animals and diet plan, but was about association. The same thing, we realize that that unleavened bread in the Passover, where he said, make sure your bread is without yeast, was about people, all right? So leaven was a symbol of the heathen, unbelievers, because anybody who was supposed to eat of the Passover had to be someone who believed in the blood that was on the lintel, because the Passover was a celebration of the blood. And so now he's saying, how come you have fellowship with someone who clearly by his actions does not believe, and he's eating with you, he's dining with you, he says, don't you know that a little leaven leaving at the whole lump? And then he says this, verse 7, therefore, purge out that old leaven. He's talking about a person. Purge out that old leaven that you may be a new lump since you are unleavened, for indeed Christ... Our Passover. This is New Testament revelation explaining Old Testament ministry, mysteries. It said Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. That's who Christ is, our Passover. Passover spoke of Christ. So when Christ said, set the scriptures, in them you think you have eternal life. they are they that testify of me. One of the many things that testified of him was the Passover itself. Christ is our Passover. The blood was symbolic of his blood. And then there is fellowship in the blood. That's why Paul said, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us. So, because you have the Spirit and I have the Spirit, we ought to have fellowship. And anyone who doesn't have that spirit cannot have fellowship with us. And so if you find someone like this guy in Corinth who clearly hasn't really believed, he says, kick him out. Don't have fellowship with him. This is what he now says. Oh, 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 oh. Verse 8. Therefore let us keep the feasts, not with old leaven, but the... Listen, pay attention nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So unleavened bread was a symbol of our fellowship, of our redemption in Christ. So because we have an equal testimony, we can celebrate together and eat together. It was never about bread, but the unleaven of sincerity and truth he says, I wrote unto you an epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Verse 11, but now I have written unto you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral, covetous, idolater, reviler, a drunkard, an extortioner. He says, not even to eat with the person. This is the part that many people don't understand. The eating was the smallest part of it. In many cultures, if I eat with you, it's a symbol that I accept you, what you stand for. So the eating was just a symbol of our fellowship in Christ. Of our fellowship in Christ. That's what it represented, our fellowship in Christ. Now, let me say this to you. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 11, this is what is going to prove to you that the eating was just a symbol. The eating is not the true communion. It's just a symbol of it, a part of it. Alright? In 1 Corinthians 11, something was happening. Some people turned, um, you know, just some people are just gluten. You know some people, anywhere there is food, they just start misbehaving and want to eat more than others, trying to, get more rations than others and they brought this attitude to the church and some will drink more wine than others won't be drunk and others don't have anything to drink some will eat more food than others more bread than others and will be full and pay attention verse first corinthians 11 verse 17 it says now we're giving these instructions i do not praise you Since you come together not for better but for worse. But first and foremost, you come together as a church. I hear that there are divisions amongst you and all of that and all of that. Verse 20. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Now they were eating. But he said, that's not the Lord's Supper. So you can be eating and not be having communion. Why? He says, for in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others. And one is hungry. While another is drunk. He says, what? Do you not have houses to eat or drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those that have nothing? This also tells you that the food he's talking about was a welfare program. He says, are you shaming those that have nothing? It's not those, that small bread and small wine that people take today. It was love feasts. Shame those that have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? I do not praise you. He says, for I received from you that which I also received from the Lord. I delivered to you. He says that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed. Pay attention. This happened the same night he was betrayed. All right. I'm coming back to that. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take it. It is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me and all of that and all of that. I said all of that to say this you see the eating was just a part a fraction of the true communion when we pray together that's communion when we fast together that's communion when we worship together that's communion and so paul says anybody who claims to be a believer But is acting otherwise. He says, with such a person, have no dealings. He says, don't even eat with him. So, when I eat with you or pray with you, I am showing fellowship in the Lord Jesus Christ. He saved you, he saved me too. Now we have something in common. Now we can fellowship together. We can eat together. Because we have a common ground in Christ and in his salvation. That's what the eating was to represent. Blood on the lintel and fellowship inside. There is a fellowship amongst those who believe in Jesus. Pay attention. The night that Jesus betrayed, I want you to see something. Before Jesus took up bread, there was something he did. What Paul said they should do to the guy in 1 Corinthians 5 is exactly what Jesus did to Judas. Oh, so in Matthew chapter 26 from verse 21 he says as they were eating he said as surely I say to you as surely I say to you one of you will betray me and they were exceeding sorrowful and each of them began to ask Lord is it I? he answered he who dipped his hand with me in this dish will betray me and the son of man indeed goes just as it is written and all of that all of that Verse 25, then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? And he said, You have said it. So, other accounts corroborate the fact that after that, Judas stood up and left them. And as Judas left, he took the bread, blessed it, and broke it. This is my body. It's all been fulfilled in Christ. It's all been fulfilled in Christ. Listen, the Bible clearly says, I'm not, I'm not adding one and two. He says, Christ is our Passover. Christ is our Passover. The New Testament is the covenant of the Spirit. He says, This is the new covenant in my blood. All that they symbolized with types and shadows, with the slaughtering of the lamb, has been fulfilled in Christ. Mind you, in those days, they didn't only eat, they first of all sacrificed lambs, put the blood on the lintel before they ate inside. So, if you're going to keep the tradition, you don't do it halfway. So, even though we, we eat occasionally, there was a welfare program in church, Acts 6, and all of that. But you have to understand primarily, if the blood and the faith therein is by faith, then the fellowship is also by faith. The communion is also by faith. The communion is primarily by the Spirit, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Ghost. Be with us now and forever. Why did Paul say that because of how some people drink and eat, um, they, they bring judgment to themselves? Because in how they act, by their showing lack of love to the body of Christ, just like that guy in 1 Corinthians 5, It is a witness against them that they never really believed. Because if they believed, they would love the Lord's people. If they believed, they would love the Lord's people. And so, the judgment that is to come on the whole world is for them also by their own belief. So it is primarily about faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And some people, you know, think that, some even think it's a requirement to make heaven. Small bread, small wine. First and foremost, this thing that people do today, where they do it alone in their house, as an ordinance, maybe to heal sickness. Let me tell you something. Anything that you have faith in will work for you. Especially when it comes to charismatic ministry, it will work for you. Nonetheless, Communion was never done alone. Nobody ever had communion on his own, first and foremost. That counsels a lot of things that are happening today. It was supposed to be a system of sharing amongst brethren, or at least amongst families. It was never to be done alone. And it was to be done, all right, to identify with the faith of others. So we can come to church All right, and we can bring food but the focus is not the food the focus is our faith in Jesus so because we believe in Jesus, now I want to love on you, I want to share my stuff with you, that's communion and I can commune with you in many other ways by being there for you, praying for you, sharing the word of God with you worshipping with you, standing by you supporting you That's the gospel of Christ. And like I said, all of this is not for the sake of argument, but for the sake of worship. For you to see that it's all done in Christ. I mean, it should stir your heart that, oh wow, what a beautiful imagery. So judgment was to come on all men, but then he sees the blood, the blood, and he passes over. For God to love the world, he gave his only begotten son. It says that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And our true communion is that we have been passed from death to life. While others died, because of our faith in Jesus, we have communion in life. Communion in life. Just give him the praise right now.